From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Whether it's more intense wildfires, supercomputers that are becoming more super, or hockey, there are commonalities between Colorado and Finland. The Finnish ambassador's in town and sat down for an interview. We'll talk national defense and climate offense. You really have to be climate friendly in terms of technology and society in order to be competitive. Because if you are sort of backtracking, if you have fossil-heavy economy, I think that's bad news, not only for the climate, but also for the economy. Then we turn our attention to space, from a Martian milestone to a lunar return. If we can establish even a small base on the moon and people can live there pretty continuously, that's the kind of thing we're going to have to do if we ever want to explore the solar system. Hi, my name is Laura. I decided to become an Evergreen member because I listen to CPR every day and I count on CPR for news. So it was time and I feel great. You get to hear it all thanks to CPR's community of support. Join that community with your first gift now. Evergreen memberships start at $5 a month. That sustaining donation builds a strong foundation of funding for Colorado Public Radio. Start your membership now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are wildfires where there didn't used to be. And if that sounds like parts of Colorado, I get it. But I'm actually talking about Finland, that forested Nordic country known for sleek design and the telecom giant Nokia. The Finnish ambassador to the U.S. is in Colorado this week on an economic development tour and wildfire, which is becoming more common in his country, was on the agenda. I spoke with Miko Hautala Tuesday, just before he met with the governor. We talked wildfire, Russia, and hockey. Ambassador, thank you for meeting me. Thank you for interviewing me. Forests cover 75% of Finland. It's the most forested country in Europe. How is climate change affecting the fire cycle there? It makes the fires more intense, uh, they are more frequent, and so we have to get prepared for that. And I think the future looks uh, rather challenging in that respect. So it used to be rather easy for the last couple of decades, but now it's, uh, we increasingly see forest fires which are more sort of intense and large, so, so we have to be ready for that. How is Finland adapting to that new reality? I think the basic method that we have is the good forest management which means that we actually do harvest the forests actively, which means that you don't have this kind of dead, dry wood fuel in the forest, in most of the forests, which means that uh, the risk is less and, and you can control it better. That is one thing. Then, of course, you have to have the fire brigades who are responsible for that. Uh, you have to have the aerial surveillance. I think you do the same in Colorado so that you are ready for that. And then, of course, uh, you also need good uh, forest road network so that the fire brigades can actually get to the scene and can limit the fires. Colorado has recently invested in more aerial surveillance and firefighting, although sometimes the winds are so intense that it grounds the aircraft. What might you hope to learn about wildfire during your visit in Colorado, Ambassador? For me, the the most important thing is what's the plan of Colorado, how to deal with this issue uh, in the future. We are not going to try to sell any particular method of how to do it because uh, I think all the regions have different 
specifics, but I think we have a lot to learn from the experience of the others. So Finland is focused on climate change, but of course, there are much larger contributors of fossil fuels, including the United States. Well, basically, what we do uh, in terms of climate change, I think we are doing that not only to counter the, the phenomenon, but also to make sure that we are more advanced. Because what I mean by this is that we do believe that down the road, you really have to be climate friendly in terms of technology and society in order to be competitive. Because if you are sort of backtracking, if you have fossil-heavy economy, I think that's bad news, not only for the climate, but also for the economy. So it's not only that we are concerned over the climate change, we are, but it's also about selfish interests to be technologically avant-garde. Speaking of technology, you're traveling with a business delegation, and one of the firms, ISI, builds satellites that monitor for natural disasters, floods, wildfire, wind, hail. The company is based in Helsinki, the Finnish capital, but has a plant in the United States. Say just a few words about why they are part of this delegation. Well, um, of course, Colorado is a center for aerospace uh, industries in the U.S., so uh, I think it's totally natural that they are part of this. ISA is one of the most interesting companies recently. They've been able to develop within a relatively short time span a really inter- interesting technologies uh, in, in, in satellite imagery. So uh, we hope that they will uh, make good business and, and, and expand their contacts in the U.S., including the Colorado area. So that's the reason why they are here. And these are smaller satellites that can be deployed in, you know, in multiples. Would you want to say a few words about what you think they can contribute to planetary understanding? They can, of course, improve the imagery you get from the space, and so it means that you have far improved methods of aerial surveillance. It has both civilian, and I also believe it has also military potential, uh, so uh, it's a really relevant technology. What other business opportunities do you see in Colorado? Definitely uh, computing technologies is one of the focus areas that we have. Finland is now roughly one of the 10 countries globally that has an up-and-running quantum computer. And we have a number of companies which are, I would say, leading companies in their own specific fields in quantum computing. And we know that Colorado is kind of a, also a center for quantum computing in the U.S., so it's only natural. Then we also have super-fast computers. Actually, the fastest computer in Europe today is in Finland. So, uh, and, and since you have this great uh, national scientific institutions, laboratories. So uh, I think they have a lot of cooperation potential in, in, in trying to use supercomputers to, to model and, and solve problems. You're speaking of the national labs, so many of which are based in Colorado. Finland is buying more than 60 F-35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin, a company that has a sizable presence in Colorado. I'm curious, is Russia, which shares a border with Finland, your greatest national security concern? And if not, what is? Uh, Russia is our neighbor, and I think we have with the Russians a functioning relationship. We have a lot of dialogue with them. We have, I would say, rather significant trade and also humanitarian relations. I would have to be a bit more kind of broad in defining Russia. Definitely the foreign policy that Russia conducts is a concern. And of course, the fact that uh, there's a war in Ukraine, in Donbass, they have taken over Crimea. This is a matter that increases the concern in Finland. And obviously, Finland, as part of the EU, 
we're also taking part in the sanctions policies towards Russia. So it's a concern that we are trying to deal with both in terms of diplomacy, but also in terms of making sure that we have a strong national defense. Finland is not a part of NATO. Do you want to see Ukraine join NATO? I think that totally belongs to the people of Ukraine. I have served in Ukraine. I still speak better Ukrainian than English. I think it belongs to them. They have to decide over their own fate. Ukraine is a European country. They have uh, as much right as any other European country to join or to be to, to be a member to NATO, depending on their own choices and depending, of course, on the decisions on the NATO side, because no country can unilaterally become a member. Are there discussions of Finland ever joining NATO? Um, there's been a discussion about Finland joining 25 years now, so um, it's a long discussion. You have a fairly solid support for that. Usually it's been between 20, 20, uh, 35%. Now in the recent weeks, because of the Russian amassing forces around Ukraine, it's been on the increase. We'll see what happens. Basically, our government line is, is, is really clear. We currently don't belong to any military alliances, including NATO. But we think it's really important for us to be able to apply, should we so decide. So NATO open doors policies is really crucial for Finland. And we also are really happy for the fact that the U.S. administration is strongly behind this open-doors policy. Why don't we wrap up with hockey, shall we? I know that you're proud of a particular avalanche player, I think whom you share a first name with, in fact. Uh, yeah, all the Mikkos are great hockey players. Uh, I used to be a, a Finnish baseball player, so I'm not too familiar with ice hockey myself. Finnish baseball is our national sport. It looks a bit like an American baseball, but it's faster. It's a bit more aggressive. So um, I'm actually Finnish junior uh, champion of Finland uh, in that game. So that's more my cup of tea. But I, of course, love the fact that we have great Finnish ice hockey players who are, I think they act like kind of an ambassadors. Uh, uh, they are certainly more well known in the U.S. than the Finnish official ambassador is. We're speaking of Miko Ratanen, by the way. Yes. So you were a baseball player. You know, the one complaint I have about baseball is it doesn't move fast enough. So I really ought to uh, familiarize myself with Finnish baseball. Please do so, because you can find uh, uh, in the Internet, Finnish baseball, you, you'll find excellent pages. Um, uh, they dis- describe the rules in, in English. And you can also see how it goes. It actually, uh, the idea for creating the game, I think the American baseball was a kind of part of the idea. But then uh, the idea was to train guys to throw a grenade the ball, and run from a, a nest to another nest. So it's a kind of, a, when you're attacking in an infantry, then you kind of uh, move 20 meters, and, and uh, it, it, it basically resembles infantry battle. So that's why it's a bit more fast than what you have. A bit of a theme of defense in this conversation. Ambassador, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. It's great to be here. Mikko Hautala is Finland's ambassador to the United States. We spoke during his visit this week to Colorado with a business delegation. Here's a little Finnish music from a band called Husky Rescue, which I was turned on to during a visit to Helsinki. It gave me hope amidst my sorrow May it be tomorrow Be with you 
Husky Rescue. From Finland to Colorado's ears, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This year is shaping up to be a busy one in space, perhaps the busiest ever. NASA is headed back to the moon. Private companies are aiming up like never before. Astronomer Doug Duncan is back for our regular conversation about space science. He's at the University of Colorado. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Let's talk about that NASA project first, since it has Colorado ties. The spacecraft Orion was built by Lockheed Martin, which has a big facility in the foothills southwest of Denver. And Orion's been in development for years, set to launch sometime this spring. Why is it going to the moon? We've, we've been there. We have. But, you know, uh, we've landed in a few places. If you were exploring the Earth and you'd landed in, you know, five places, you probably wouldn't consider it a done job. <laughs> From a scientific point of view, what we love about the moon is the lack of weather and the lack of erosion which means you can poke around and you can find some very, very old rocks. And unlike the Earth, where most of the really old rocks have gone, uh, we can pick up things on the moon and we can learn a lot about the early history of the solar system. So from a scientific point of view, it makes sense to go back to the moon. But I think I should be clear that NASA's goal going back to the moon this time is to stay. And so if we can establish Uh, even a small base on the moon, and people can live there pretty continuously. That's the kind of thing we're going to have to do if we ever want to explore the solar system. If we want to send people to Mars, for instance, to look for life, uh, you got to be able to live in space for months, not days. And the moon is a pretty good place to practice that. Just to unpack a little bit of what you said there, uh, the moon being a kind of record of our solar system. Uh, The moon does not have the kind of weather that erodes uh, all of that geologic history uh, as happens on the earth. That's what I hear you saying. That's right. You know, if you try and find the oldest rocks on the earth, I believe the oldest that have ever been found are a little over 3 billion years old. But every meteorite that's fallen to the ground is four and a half billion years old. So it seems pretty clear that our solar system formed four and a half billion years ago. Well, you can find rocks on the moon that are over four billion years old. So they're pushing back to the earliest uh, days of our solar system. And so if you want a record of what happened in those very important early days when the Earth was forming and and then after a little bit, life was beginning, the, the moon's pretty good fossil record. Okay, and then to your second point, uh, that the moon is good practice for a potential colony on another planet. Um, Let's be clear that the Orion mission is not a people mission yet, correct? So there'll be one flight, and this whole program, by the way, is called Artemis, which is the mythological name for the the moon god. And uh, so the first a trip around the moon will have nobody in it. And then that'll be followed up a couple of years later with astronauts. 
that will eventually go back and, and land on the moon. Now, you, By you, the way, yeah, the Orion capsule looks a lot like Apollo. And sometimes people ask me, well, gosh, isn't this just the same thing? Hmm. It's actually quite a bit bigger. You know, they have the same shape because they have to have a heat shield and come back and go through the atmosphere and land. But Orion is designed for up to three weeks of going out into space. So it can go a lot farther uh, into space. So the plan over the next few years is for uh, this project to get astronauts uh, into orbit around the moon. And then I understand that NASA wants to let private companies get folks to the actual surface. Do I have that right? You sure do. It's it's now a, a, a core part of NASA's strategy to be working with private companies. In fact, there's a whole division of NASA now called the Commercial Lunar Payload Service. Hmm. And it's basically a way of a hybrid between the government and private companies because NASA's coming up with some money for a contract, but it hands it off to private companies to do the work. And so for instance, SpaceX uh, has been doing the work of getting uh, humans and cargo up to the International Space Station. I, I don't think most people realize there's been 29 private missions. Uh, and so, you know, NASA went there first, but then it turned over going to the space station to private companies. Hmm. It's kind of the same way with the moon. NASA obviously went there first, but it's going to be SpaceX that's building the lander to take astronauts to land on the moon. Is there profit to be made on the moon? at all? You know, that's a very, very good question. Uh, it's kind of hard to see that right now for me, but uh, it's just really hard to project whether there will be some rare things to be found on the moon, yeah. whether there will be some things that can be done under the small gravity of the moon that can't be done on the earth. I think it would be a very, very wise person who looked at uh, uh, an airplane like the Wright brothers and ever thought that would be commercial. I mean, even hmm. by the time Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic, if you'd told people that, you know, uh, a million people a year are going to fly the Atlantic, they kind of would have laughed you right out of the room. And yet we're just gearing up not only to send people into space for a few minutes, but maybe send people into orbit my word, will there will there be a tourist industry in space one day? I think that's very hard to predict. It's Elon Musk's goal that the answer to that be yes. But I don't think that's going to be the main driver. And certainly in the beginning, it's the scientists and the explorers who want to see what's there. Indeed, lots of science to be conducted on the moon for reasons you've spelled out about unlocking some of the older secrets of the universe. There's also some talk about placing a telescope on the moon, isn't there? You know, you just beat me to it, Ryan. <laughs> uh, I would say that the most exciting scientific project I know of for the moon is to put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. Now, it turns out that radio telescopes are especially good at finding big clouds of gas in space. And our knowledge that our galaxy, for instance, is a spiral with spiral arms, with gas and dust and new stars forming, that comes uh, in good part from radio telescopes. Turns out that a radio telescope should be able to detect the gas in the universe before any stars or galaxies ever formed. 
like the very, very beginning of the universe, the first stars, you need a radio telescope to, to detect that. But it's very, very faint because it's from billions of years ago and billions of light years away. So you don't want any interference in your radio telescope. And the only place that doesn't have interference from TV signals and cell phone signals and even CPR broadcasts <laughs> is on the far side of the moon. The far side of the moon. Because you, you can't see the Earth. You can't hear the Earth. It's totally quiet. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and astronomer Doug Duncan is back for our conversation about all things space. We've mentioned the payloads. We've mentioned the possibility of a telescope. What other, I guess on the private side, what other kinds of work is going on? Oh, the most innovative stuff is on the private side. NASA has already hired three companies uh, to send private missions to the moon. And the first one's going to be this year. Uh, and it's a very cool company called Astro Robotics, which was founded by Carnegie Mellon professor and students. Some listeners may know that Carnegie Mellon is a great university for robotics, and they have built a mini moon mission. Um, it's called Peregrine. It's going to carry 200 pounds to the moon. Now, that's not very much. You know, that's what I weigh. <laughs> but it's going to have multiple little experiments and missions on it. The cutest is a, a, a tiny rover called Iris. Iris only weighs six pounds. It's, it's kind of like a, a little robotics competition robot the size of a shoebox. It's got a little uh, camera on it, and it's a miniaturized mission to the moon. And it's going to be able to drive around and do some things that a much costlier big mission would do. So I think the future of private space is a lot of tiny things doing wonderful missions. Iris. I like yes. that you use the word cute in a conversation about space science. Uh, of course, private companies have been sending satellites into orbit for years, uh, mixing a space metaphor here. That's an activity that's going to get a big boost this year as well, right? Absolutely. You know, already people have probably noticed that SpaceX company has been launching hundreds of small satellites. In fact, I've gotten quite a few UFO reports because when SpaceX launches these, they launch 60 or 100 at a time. And a lot of people have seen these little dots, faint dots, all in a line marching across the sky. Mm. Looks for all the world like an alien invasion. But what it actually is, is Elon Musk and company putting up hundreds of satellites such that ultimately there's always going to be one flying over you. And their goal is to give the whole world internet, no matter where you are. Um, so, and that's not the only thing all of those satellites that are being launched can do. You know, I, I think in just a few years, there'll be a satellite passing over almost every place on the earth. Most listeners are used to Google Earth, and, and you can pull up a picture of anywhere, but usually that picture is a couple of years old. Well, let's say something is happening, uh, and it's really important to get information about it, you can buy a picture, it'll come down to you in, in minutes or hours, and you can see what's going on. So I can think of a lot of positive aspects of being able to see the whole earth almost all the time. But it can also be a little bit creepy to know that you're always being watched from space. You've said, Doug, that people think these many satellites are UFOs. Uh, certainly, they're unidentified to them. Uh, does it also just conflict with stargazing? 
actually, uh, both on a professional and a personal level, Ryan, I, I find that very unfortunate. On the professional level, there's getting to be so many satellites that when astronomers take long exposure pictures, especially ones with big telescopes on the ground that look at very faint things, nowadays there's usually two or three stripes across the picture, and that's a satellite hmm. moving through the picture. It's bad enough that there's just a couple. We can edit those out. But I could imagine in the future that it might really interfere with what astronomers try and do. And there's actually negotiations going on between a committee of astronomers and SpaceX right now to try and make their satellites, you know, paint them black and make them reflect less and have less of an interruption. On the personal level, all of human history, we've been able to look up at the sky and it's been the same wonderful constellations. And now all of a sudden, these little teeny strange dots may be moving through your sky. You might be out there camping in the Rocky Mountains and you see this stuff. Maybe it's interesting the first time, but I kind of think it'll interfere with the beauty of the sky if it gets too overwhelming. I suppose this speaks to our earlier point that putting a telescope on the far side of the moon is going to be beneficial <laughs> as our uh, skies get more uh, busy. I, I want to acknowledge finally an anniversary and get caught up on what's happening on Mars. So the Perseverance rover landed there last February 18th, and it had a little mechanical glitch recently. What's the deal? Well, a clever part of the Perseverance rover, a very important part, is that it has a big long arm with cameras and a drill. And the drill is hollow core. And it's really very clever. When it bores into the rock, the very middle part of the drill gets captured and it puts it in a little sample thing, like kind of like a test tube. And then it places that uh, in the rover. And it's collecting those samples from all over Mars to one day be returned to the Earth. Well, when it tried to put one of the samples into the rover, it kind of had a lot of friction. And it's pretty smart. If it doesn't go in smoothly, it stops. And it, and it radios the Earth and says, hey, uh, there's something wrong. I'm not being able to place my sample. What should I do? Hmm. And the Earth told it, take a picture. And it took a picture. And that, sure enough, there were about a handful of pebbles that had fallen out of the sample tube and were kind of uh, in the way of the mechanism. So it kind of was like a rock in your shoe, except 100 million miles away. What do you do to get rid of the pebble? Right. It, well, what do you do? <laughs> uh, it did two things. One, it moved the mechanism back and forth, and that knocked a couple of pebbles off because it took the camera and it looked underneath it and it saw two pebbles on the surface of Mars. And then it actually drove up a little hill so that it was sitting at an angle and it kind of moved one of its wheels to do the twist. And that little vibration knocked the rest of the debris out and, wow. and now it's fine. It did the twist. That is amazing. Uh, it's like the longest distance remote control situation. On this same mission, there's another vehicle, a little helicopter called Ingenuity. How has that been, uh, I guess, working with the rover, right? Oh, they, they have worked amazingly as a team. Um, Ingenuity can fly up to 20 or 30 feet high, and it can scout the terrain. It can tell the rover what's interesting and, and what's dangerous. Uh, I added up all the driving and all the flying. And in the first year, the rover's gone about two miles and Ingenuity has flown about two and a half miles and sending back pictures that let the rover be much smarter in where it drives. 
So Ingenuity has surpassed all expectation. It was supposed to fly six times. It's flown 18 missions and it hasn't quit yet. Doug, it's fascinating as always. Thanks for talking to us. You're very welcome, Ryan. Doug Duncan is an astronomer and the former director of CU's Fisk Planetarium. We speak regularly about all things space. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.